So we began this new sermon series called That You May Believe last week. And during this series, we are looking at some encounters that people had with Jesus, specifically uh, three different encounters that people had with Jesus where he invited them to believe and where they began to share their stories with others. Now, last week, we looked at a story where Jesus traveled to a region called Samaria. And in Samaria, Jesus encountered a woman who came to a well. And this woman was experiencing some shame. She was experiencing some disconnectedness from her neighbors. She was experiencing uh, this reality where she came to this well later in the day just to get away from other people because of some stuff that was going on in her life. And as she came to this well, she unexpectedly comes upon Jesus sitting at this well. And there's all kinds of stuff happening in the story, all kinds of stuff taking place. And I encourage you to go back last week, listen to this story, uh, to hear some of those additional pieces and the challenge about belief and the invitation of belief that that story teaches us. But in this story, there's one thing that I want to come back to today, and that is this idea of Jesus's invitation to this woman. Because as they sat at that well, as they talked, as Jesus welcomed her into a conversation with him, he invited her to draw what he called living water. And he talked to her about this in a way that he said this wasn't water that was found in this well. It was water that comes directly from Jesus. And that may sound a little strange to us, and that may sound a little odd to us, but this living water was an invitation by Jesus for her to believe, to believe in hope and to believe in a future, to believe in God's provision, to, to really believe in God's grace and mercy, to believe that God could meet her where she is and live and work in and through her life. And so this woman, as she receives this invitation to believe, does just that. The, the water pitcher that she is carrying, she just simply leaves behind. And I think this is a very symbolic, very important understanding for us, that she leaves behind what she had come to do so she can run back in the village and tell others about Jesus. So think about this. She, she goes to this well to avoid all these people. She meets Jesus. She's invited to receive his grace and his mercy and his love, to receive this living water that can work in and through her, to realize that she can have this kind of relationship with God through Jesus. And so rather than uh, getting the water that she had come to do, rather than ignoring Jesus' invitation, she believes. She leaves that behind, and she leaves that picture behind. She leaves her shame behind. She leaves her avoidance behind, and she goes right into the village and begins to tell people about this Jesus whom she had met, and they also then came to believe. And it's really just an absolutely incredible story. But this phrase, living water, had deep meaning. It had deep meaning to her, and it would have had deep meaning to the people uh, that she had told about Jesus because it was connected to a festival ceremony. This festival ceremony took place in Jerusalem where a priest would go to a pool of water. They would fill this pitcher. They would return to the temple. They would pour out the water on the altar as a symbol of God's provision. This living water that God had provided was to be remembered because it brought life when there was no other hope. So this festival time that they gathered together, this festival that was about the time that the Israelite community had experienced a lack of really a lack of hope and journey in a desert where no one else was providing anything to them, God provides for them. 
And God provided them this water, what they began to call living water. So they reenact that. They live that out. They continue this festival year after year after year, reminding themselves in the next generation of God's hope and God's provision through this miracle of living water. So the priest goes, he fills up this pitcher, he comes back, he pours this out, and every year reminds them of that living water. It's within that festival and in that moment that Jesus spoke into that experience. Jesus said these words, on the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood, said in a loud voice, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. So when we hear the phrase living waters, uh, we may not be familiar with some of these passages. But the people in the ancient world, the people around Jesus at that time as he is talking, their minds would have come to some of these passages. These were phrases and ideas that were common to them that they understood. There is a prophetic reality here. There is a hopeful thing here. There is a connection to this idea of this festival. And so whether it is the woman at the well, whether it is the uh, Samaritans in the village that she knew, whether it is the people in Jerusalem celebrating this festival, this idea of living water was about hope and provision. And then Jesus takes this moment, he begins to help them to reimagine it, to see how God is, is uh, taking what they understood and how he's connecting it to himself because Jesus is doing something new through him. So living water is no longer something in the past that God did. Living water is something that, that God is doing through Jesus. And Jesus wants these people to see this. So he says, whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, now this is fulfilled. Rivers of living water will flow from within them. So what Jesus is saying that through him, we experience this new reality of life brought through the giving of the Holy Spirit, poured out upon us like water. Just like how the priest poured the, uh, the water in the altar of, in Jerusalem, Jesus says the Holy Spirit is poured out on us, flows in and through us, transforming us in the world around us. Now, this is such great language because this symbolism helps us to put into, spirit, or into words the spiritual reality that takes place as we believe and give our lives to Jesus. This symbolism of the Holy Spirit being poured out on our lives, on us as a spiritual community, working in and through our lives, working through and in us together to bring a transforming reality of God into this world. Now we come back to this today because this symbolism is going to continue into the story that we're going to look at today as we return to the water. But instead of the water that is poured out on the altar, we're going to take a, 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 a we're going to backtrack a little bit, and we're going to go back to the pool where the priest gathered that water for that ceremony. And that pool was called a pool of Siloam. And as we come to this part of the of, of this of the book of John, as we come to this next story, we come to that pool, and we see it is at that place that Jesus continues to have this invitation to believe. The very same, I just think this is so cool, the very same pool where this priest took water and came and poured this water out that Jesus called living water, Jesus comes to that pool. He sees someone in need. He offers his love and his grace, his mercy and his healing. And at that pool where that living water is found, he gives an invitation 
to believe. And I want us to see what happens here. As belief meets disbelief and unbelief, as belief meets indifference, as belief meets hostility, how the different characters respond to this invitation and this challenge from Jesus. Let's read it. John 9, starting in verse 1. As Jesus went along, he saw a blind man from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, Jesus says. But this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. So this story begins with a question. And it begins with a question that we've all asked. Why do bad things happen? Why do bad things happen to people? Now the tendency, and we see this in the disciples, is to think that everything, even the bad things, are part of some kind of cosmic plan. Maybe some kind of retribution, maybe some kind of vindication from God. And that's wrong. What we find here is that God isn't sadistic. Instead, God reaches down into the brokenness and pain of our world to redeem, to restore, and to renew. I don't know why it doesn't happen all at once, but we're promised that day will come. And sometimes we get glimpses of it, like here in this story. And that's what Jesus' answer is saying. The things that happen in our lives are the mess and the suffering and, and the pain are, are really places where God is able to come in and to work. And there's a tension in that. Hear me out. There's a tension in that. Because we want all of those things to be all fixed all at once. And I'm going to tell you this as a pastor, I don't have an answer why that all doesn't happen all at once. But I do know that that day will come. I want that day to come today, but there is a promise that that day will happen someday. And see, the responsibility of a Christian, the opportunity of a Christian, is to point others to that hope that that day is indeed coming. That day when all things are made new and suffering and pain and hurt and all of that goes away, that day is coming. But because of our relationship with God, because of Jesus, what we do is we point to that day and we show the reality of the glimpses of the hope of that day in our lives, in and through us, in and through things that are happening in this world, in and through the times and, and opportunities that we have to meet suffering and to, to um, help others in the name of Jesus. We offer a glimpse of that hope. And in the stories of Jesus, in the life of Jesus, when we see these healings take place, what we see Jesus doing is saying that he is ushering in this new reality of all things being made new. And he is saying, I am giving you glimpses of that reality in the here and the now. The miracles pointed to the reality of who Jesus was, that he is the Messiah, that he is the king of his kingdom. But we recognize that there is a tension that his kingdom is coming in fullness, but is not yet here. And so we simply get glimpses of this. Now there's beauty in that. There's tension in that. There's, there's some, some, a lot of questions in that. But that's why we live in the tension of the now, but the, but the not yet. Of the coming, but not the completion of of a kingdom that we belong to but has not come in its fullness. 
But again, we get glimpses of it. We get glimpses of it in stories like this. Let's go to John 9 and let's listen to how this story continues. After saying this, he spit on the ground, made some mud with the saliva, put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means scent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. His neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, Isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that he was. Others said, No, he only looks like him. But he himself insisted, I am the man. How then were your eyes open? they asked. He replied, The man they called Jesus made some mud. He put it on my eyes. He told me to go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed, and then I could see. Where is this man? They asked him. I I don't know, he said. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had been blind. Now the day on which Jesus had made the mud and opened the man's eyes was Sabbath. Therefore, the Pharisees also asked, how had he received his sight? He put mud on my eyes, the man replied, and I washed and now I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others asked, how can a sinner perform such signs? So they were divided. Then they turned again to the blind man. What have you to say about him? It was your eyes he opened. The man replied, he's a prophet. They still did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they sent for the man's parents. Is this your son? They asked. Is this the one you say was born blind? How is it that now he can see? We know he is our son parents answered. We know he was born blind, but how he can see now or who opened his eyes? We don't know. Ask him. He's of age. He will speak for himself. Now listen to this. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders who had already decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. Now, there is a lot taking place, a lot that we are reading through the story. But we see here is a back and forth between belief and unbelief, between belief and disbelief, between um, questions and antagonism, between answers and people who simply can't believe what had taken place. And the key phrase in all of this is in verse 22, we see that these Pharisees, these teachers of the law, these people who really were standing against Jesus because there, there was just too much baggage that went along with Jesus for them to agree that anything he did was healing. So that's why you see this tension here. You see this man saying, look, my eyes were blind. I, I could not see. This person that they called Jesus, he came up to me, he healed me, now I can see. His parents look, other people look, the crowds look. They say, this is the man. There is no other explanation for what took place in this moment. We don't know. But as we look in verse 22, we see that the Pharisees had already decided that anyone who believed in Jesus would be put out of the synagogue, be put out of their community, be put out of their place of worship if they believed in him. So, of course, they themselves could not admit that anything that Jesus had done 
could have been possible. So they're trying to find any way they can to say, no, 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 this man's lying. It's not true. This cannot be true. There must be something else taking place. Again, just too much baggage that went along with Jesus. It would be, it'd be too much for them to change their minds and believe. They would be deconstructing everything that they believed if they put their faith in Jesus. And that kind of deconstruction can be, sick, can be really scary. A few chapters back, we actually see this taking place with a man named Nicodemus. He's a Pharisee. He came to Jesus. He came to believe. But it took um, a lot of work. It took a lot of uh, humbleness to put belief. It's easier sometimes to simply say, I'm just going to stand on this. I'm not going to allow God to, to change anything that I believe. But what we find in this story is that when God acts, when Jesus enters the story, sometimes everything that we thought we understood has to be taken down to a humble place. We have to recognize that sometimes we start over. Sometimes we have to deconstruct some of those beliefs because we see God is working in a different way than we understood. So we continue in the story and we begin to see some of this taking place. And I think this is a really hard story to read because we also see that the man's parents, some of his friends, all the people around him began to disappear out of fear because they thought they would be, be judged for their connection to Jesus. So let's go on and let's see what happens in some of these conversations and what this can teach us that we can learn today. It continues on in, in verse 24. A second time they, the Pharisees here, summoned the man who had been blind. Give glory to God by telling the truth, they said. Now, hold on, I'm going to have Joe come back to me for a second, because this reminds me of something here. Do, do you see what's happening? So, so they bring this man up, they begin to question him. He gives them the answer. They don't like the answer, right? So they've already made up their mind about what he did. And so then they send him back out. They call him back again. And do you see what they said? They said, give glory to God by telling the truth. Now, all of us have experienced this from the side of a parent. We look at our kids and we say, listen, listen, I... I know what happened. I just want you to tell me the truth. Now, we know what you did, but you need to tell the truth. Now, here's the, here's the kicker about this. Sometimes, sometimes as a parent, I've been wrong. And I've looked and I've said, now, if you would just tell me the truth, and I've already made up my mind, and I'm trying to get them to confess to something instead of realizing, maybe I don't know the whole story here. Maybe there's a different way to do this. Maybe there's a different way to come about this. And that's what I think is happening here. They've already made up their mind. And they're like, hey, just tell the truth. He's, and he is telling the truth. Let's go on. Let's see what he says. Then they say, we know this man is a sinner. He replied, look, whether he, and he's talking about Jesus here, is a sinner or not, I don't know. And one thing I do know, I was blind. But now I see. Look, I know a lot of things. There's one thing. I, I don't know everything. I don't have all the easy answers, but there's one thing I do know. One thing I do know. I was blind, but now I see. Now we're going to come back to that in a few minutes, but I think this is such a significant thing for this man to say. And this is such a lesson for all of us. I don't know. I don't know. Do you see those, that key phrase there, those three words? I don't know. Now, the book of John is really fascinating. 
Because the audience that it was written to was really obsessed with knowledge. John was most likely written to a Greek audience. Greeks were, were very focused on the idea of, of, of knowledge, of knowing. There's a very philosophical mindset, I think, that takes place in the book of John. And so these people are obsessed with this idea that we know the answers. Now, I think in Western culture, we are the same way. And I think this has infiltrated some of the reality of what we are as a church, that we tend to, as people, say, I need to know all the answers. But we don't always get the answers. The answers aren't always easy to find. And sometimes what we do is we tend to take what is a very mystical reality about God that is truly, when you think about the spiritual, there's a lot that we just simply don't know. But not knowing is so uncomfortable for people. But I want you to see that as we follow Jesus, we don't lean into getting all the answers. It is a mysterious reality. The spiritual is a mysterious thing. Some of the greatest things you can say is, I, I don't know. This is one of the pieces that I found to be really important. One of the first things that I told our students as we gathered for student ministry, I said, I just want you to know as your pastor, sometimes I will tell you, I don't know, but we will explore that together. I don't want them to have some kind of concept that I have all the answers or that we can simply proof text and search the scriptures and just find that, that somehow we use some kind of appendix and we go in and there's just a bunch of easy answers. That's not reality. Scripture doesn't give us easy answers. It gives us better questions to ask. And what I've learned is that the longer you're a person of faith, the more you go into this kind of posture. I don't know. But I do know one thing. I was blind, but now I see. Now listen how it continues. Then they asked him, what did he do to you? How, how did he open your eyes? He answered, I have told you already. You did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? <laughs> I love this because I hear this kind of frustration coming out of the man. Well, fine. Do you want to become his disciples? That must be what's going on. And I kind of think it's sarcastic. I think it's a sarcastic. Do you want to become his disciples too? They're, they keep asking. They just can't get away from it. So he seems to be asking this out of annoyance. But he's just matching the annoyance of the Pharisees. But the Pharisees have an annoyance for a very different reason. Their frustration is that new things are happening all around them. God was working the more that they dug in, the more frustrated they got. And this is sort of what we see in these passages. That these people who opposed Jesus, he continued to heal, he continued to teach, he continued to show people, to bring people out of darkness into this light. This is a phrase that they use. So this idea that, that, that everything was sort of clouded, they were unsure. Jesus begins to show them a new reality around them. And these people just can't take it. They can't accept Jesus. The baggage is too much. So they just dig into their beliefs more and more and more. They just keep digging in and saying, no, that can't be true. God can't be doing new things. He can't be doing that. Their, their, their God is so small. The box that they have put God in is so small. But what we've learned is that God does not fit in an easy box. They continue to do it. The more they dig in, the more frustrated they get. 
Now, I want to connect this to something because we've talked a lot recently about God working through us as we pray for His will on earth as it is in heaven. This, I'm going to show you how this is all going to connect. It's going to make sense. A, couple, a few weeks ago, we did a series on the Lord's Prayer. And in that prayer, Jesus said that we're to pray a certain way. And in that prayer, he says, pray for his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. I talked a little bit about this at the beginning. This idea that as people of hope, as Jesus followers, we see the hope of what is to come. We bring that into our world today. In some ways, how we can talk about that is we talk about the way that it is in heaven. We talk about the way that it is in the age to come. We talk about it in what God wants in fullness. We talk about it as God's will, his grace, his mercy, his love. Everything that is true of God is what God wants in this world here and now today. And we pray that because we believe it. We believe that this world needs more grace. This world needs more love. This world needs more mercy. This world needs more justice. This world needs more forgiveness. Another way to say that would, this world needs more heaven. This world needs more Jesus. And that is the way of Jesus. We talk about exploring the way of Jesus. We are learning to live out his grace and his love and his mercy, his justice and his forgiveness in this world. Another way that we talked about this is that this world needs more of God's ever-expanding love. The story of the Samaritan woman shows God's ever-expanding love as Jesus brings this invitation to the Samaritan people, a people that were, were frankly outsiders that weren't welcome in. He begins to open that up. He continued to do that. We see Paul doing that as he opens up the story to the Gentiles. He said the whole world, the whole entire world, is a part of the story of God's love and grace and mercy. God's ever-expanding love. Longer tables, not bigger walls, is another way that we could put that. But think about this for a minute. If there is more grace, if there's more love, if there's more mercy, if there's more justice, if there's more forgiveness coming into this world, those who are comfortable with the opposite of those things, those who live out greed or racism, bigotry, judgment, and hate become even more uncomfortable. So see, what we're doing is we're saying, I want to bring God's love and justice and mercy and grace and forgiveness into this world. I want God to work in and through me. I want people to see glimpses of all of these realities of God in this world. And the people who, who instead live out of a place of hate and racism and greed and bigotry are going to look at that and they're going to begin to say, I don't want to be dragged into any of this. And they're going to dig their heels in and they're going to be very much uncomfortable with all of that. And they may become angry. They may become frustrated. They may begin to say, well, my God in my little box doesn't fit with any of this stuff that you're talking about. They will claim that they have righteous indignation when really it is dissonance with the way of God. And that's what's happening here. These people are claiming righteous indignation that they somehow have it all figured out. And they can't see that Jesus is working. And he is bringing the will of God into this world. And their dissonance with God causes them to dig in, to get angry, and to become frustrated. 
the Pharisees were becoming more and more out of tune with what God was doing, which led to even more conflict with Jesus. Man, it is just a huge lesson for all of us to see what God is doing, to join God in what God is doing, to work for his love and his grace and his mercy and his forgiveness and justice. Those are the things that we know are eternal. Those are the things in which we should put our energy. Let's see the frustration as it begins to boil over and what happens. Then they hurled insults at him and said, You are this fellow's disciple. We are disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses, but as for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. The man answered, Now that is remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to the godly person who does his will. Nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. But if this man were not from God, he could do nothing. To this they replied, you were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. Now this goes right back to what the disciples said at the very beginning of the story. Who sinned, this man or his parents? Who was it that sinned? Who's responsible for him being blind? And Jesus says, nobody. Nobody. But God is going to meet him in this moment, and he is going to work. He says, I am coming into this very moment for the glory of God. Now, you see, their answer is completely opposite. They look and say, God can't be working here. God can't be here in this moment. There is no grace. There is no mercy. All they see is a vindictive reality taking place. So they throw him out. And the story seems to be ending in a point of isolation. His friends are gone. His family is gone. He's shunned from everything he knew. The people who brought him up in faith have walked away from him because he had an experience with Jesus and his beliefs began to change. But as he turns away, he once again encounters Jesus. Jesus heard that they had thrown him out. And when he found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he, sir? The man asked. Tell me so that I may believe in him. Jesus said, You have now seen him. In fact, he's the one speaking with you. Then the man said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. I love this part of the story. I love that he's thrown out and Jesus goes and looks for him. I love that the man is isolated from everything he thought he knew and Jesus came looking for him. When we are alone, we are afraid, we are unsure, our life is full of questions, don't have a doubt that Jesus comes and looks for you. And as he comes to him, he asks, he says, who am I speaking to? Who, who, where is this Messiah? Where is this Lord? You've seen him. He's speaking to you right now. It's kind of the same way that Jesus spoke to the Samaritan woman. I am he. And the man said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. I want you to imagine that picture. I want you to imagine that moment. I want you to imagine the audacity that to, to worship him in that place, in that very public reality. 
what other must, people must have thought at that moment. Now, here's how I want us to close today and understand this, that this story is about a first century blind man whose eyes were open and made to see. But the author of this passage wants us to see something else taking place here. He wants us to be aware that spiritual blindness is the metaphor to carry with us as we learn from this passage. And he shows that through us through one more encounter with the Pharisees. Jesus said, For judgment I have come into this world, so that the blind will see, and those who see will become blind. Some Pharisees are with him, heard this, and they asked, What, are we, are we blind too? Jesus said, If you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. They could not see that God was working, that God was working in a new way through Jesus. And if we're not careful, we allow our small boxes, we allow our own conceptions to never be questioned, to never allow ourselves to look and see God working in new ways. We never see the way Jesus is working when we live like that. So here's some questions I want to leave us with as we think about this. Perhaps today you are new to a relationship with Jesus. It's like for the first time you can clearly see and feel God's love and grace. Today as you have this invitation to say, I believe, to trust in Jesus, to recognize you may not have all the answers, but to begin that journey of saying, I, I don't know everything, but I do know I was blind, but now I can see. Now because of my relationship with Jesus, I can see grace and love and forgiveness and mercy and justice in my life and now in this world. Through Jesus, I'm allowing the Holy Spirit to work in and through my life to transform my life and transform the world around me, to join others in this journey of following Jesus. If you begin that journey, you'll see his love and his grace. You'll feel his love and his grace. You'll understand this concept of I was blind, but now I see. Now for others of you, you're on a painful journey of deconstruction. Your eyes have been opened and some of your assumed beliefs are in question. Your spiritual house might need to be in a place of a restoration project. I want you to be encouraged. You stand on a foundation of Jesus with others who walk beside you and will help you build. And I want to encourage you to not put God in some tiny box, but recognize that that box begins to open up. Begin to allow His Holy Spirit to work in your life. Begin to not look for easy answers. Begin to search out His grace and His mercy and His forgiveness. And for all of us, as we work for God's grace, love, mercy, justice, and forgiveness, there will be tension. God's perplexing love has a way of doing that. But just as we started the sermon today, we don't have all the answers to all the questions, but the best answer to why or how does this happen is this. Because of Jesus. Because of Jesus, I was blind, but now I see. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this story that has so many twists and turns and so many things that we can look at and so many ways we can begin to understand it. 
God, as we come to the end of it, help us to see this belief that this man had in you. Help us to have the courage to say, I believe. I don't know. I don't have all the answers, but I believe. I, I believe in the way of Jesus. I believe that he shows me the way to love and grace and mercy and justice, forgiveness. I believe that in Jesus, I find grace and mercy. I believe that through Jesus, I experience the Father's love and the reality of the Holy Spirit. God, I invite you to work in and through us. Help us to be people of grace and love and mercy in this world, but help us to recognize that as we do it, we may face tension. We may face, face people who are dug in. In our own lives, we may experience that. Father, the brokenness within us that calls us to greed, that calls us to hate, that call, causes us to not follow your way. Father, help us to push back against that tension, to recognize and see that we were blind, but now we see. We see through the eyes of our Heavenly Father who shows us grace and forgiveness and invites us to see that in this world too, to help us to see your love, your ever-expanding, perplexing love. God, thank you for loving us. And may we continue to love like you in all we do, and we believe in you, and ask all of this in your name. Amen.